This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Herbert Butchers Calder, otherwise known as Tiny Tim. We love you, Tiny. over in Toronto, not-so-tiny Tim Merrill. Howdy. Tiptoe through the tulips. Oh, welcome, Miss Tim. And over there in Bath in England, my very good friend, Miss Bernard. Hello. All right, I'll drop that. (laughs) I won't regale you with a rendition of Tiptoe Through the Tulips or any of the other great classic Tiny Tim tunes, but... Morris, I I will PayPal you $20 if you speak in a Tiny Tim voice through this entire episode. Uh, I don't think you have enough money uh, to to enable me to do that. But dear listeners... We are here to talk about Tiny Tim. More specifically, we are going to be speaking to the director of a new documentary called Tiny Tim, King for a Day. The director's name is Johan von Sydow, and we're very much looking forward to speaking to him very shortly. We're going to go to a quick break and play the trailer for the film, and then we'll be back with Johan talking all things Tiny Tim. So uh, don't you go tiptoeing through the tulips. We'll be back shortly. Everybody thought that he was just a homeless guy who wandered into the club. I feel like someone from Mars coming to Earth. There's sexual ambiguity, political ambiguity, ethnic ambiguity. It's all ambiguous with Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim's on next. Tiny Tim. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. Who is this? Where did he come from? Who dropped him here? I am the hottest talent in the whole country. Tiny Tim gets married on the tonight show, watched by 50 million people. You've played at the Royal Albert Hall, you've played at Caesars Palace, you've toured the world. What do you do? Where can you possibly go after that? I am praised by everyone, and yet my soul is in hell. <laughs> Years ago, they said I'd never make it. Tim hasn't been doing much television lately. Try to stick a pin. Tiny was willing to pursue pretty much any angle to make a comeback. So brilliant to be 
here today. So, we are great. There must be changes in my career. I didn't realize how addicted he was to the applause. Well, it's because, Video Vortex Podcast. Listen in as Bucks, Ben and Steph have a conversational discussion and talk about how much films affect us as people and as a society. Yes, we do all of those things. Along with guests from the industry and beyond. And get sucked into the video vortex. Don't say sucked on a promo. <sighs> we most definitely are making up on the spot. Find us on assorted apps and at videovortex.podbean.com. I'm so happy, oh, happy go lucky me. I just go my way, living every day. I don't worry, worrying don't agree. Welcome back to episode 77 of See Here Podcast, and we're very excited because we have on the other end of a Skype connection, Johan von Sydow. He's the director of a new documentary about Tiny Tim called Tiny Tim King for a Day. Welcome to the show, Johan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on getting the film out. I know it's been a tough year for filmmakers to get their work seen, but no doubt you've had some level of screening. So I just wanted to start off with, I guess, what's something of an obvious question, but what was your entry point for Tiny Tim? Do you remember a TV appearance? What was the first thing that you saw him on and attracted you? I remember clearly I was doing another film about a Swedish artist who disappeared in the 60s, and his friend and another artist told me that he loved Tiny Tim, and then he started to laugh, and his tears fell, and he said, you gotta check him out, Tiny Tim. I hadn't heard about him, and that was like eight or nine years ago, and then I googled him, and I think I think it was tiptoe. I'm not sure, but I think it was tiptoe from laughing. Wait till you see this. Tiny has added a bit of choreography to his usual presentation. There is nothing usual about Tiny Tim's presentation. <laughs> And my tears started falling in five seconds. I thought, wow, what a guy, what a story he must have. And I thought to myself, I have to see the documentary about him. And I was started looking for it and found out that there wasn't any. And since that's my job to tell stories. And I had a friend, a colleague, Malik Benjalul, who made Searching for Sugarman. And he was working on that one at that point. And I thought, he can do a thing about an American artist. I can do that too. So then I started. As part of your research, did you find 
find out, did Chinese music actually mean anything in Sweden back in the day? Very little. I'm a staff producer at the national television company, Swedish Television, and we have a huge archive from the 50s and on, and he wasn't even mentioned there, so he didn't make at all any impression in Scandinavia. He was in, I mean, he was in England and Germany and France, but not in Scandinavia. Tim, you were the one who discovered this film, were really, really enthusiastic that we should speak to you, Hans. So when was the first time you recall hearing Tiny Tim? It absolutely probably undeniably had to be with laughing when I was a young kid. I mean, three or four years old. Mm. When you see somebody like Tiny, you definitely remember that. There's not a lot you remember of your early, early childhood, but when certain characters or songs stick out, and I remember he was one of them. That's amazing. I remember actually seeing the laughing appearance back all that time, and like it was a real blast to come and see that back in the film. Bernie, do you have any recollection of hearing anything about Tiny Tim? Yeah, like Tim, when I was this this would have been a little later I was probably about like 12 13 years old they would uh, show reruns of laughing over here and I remember seeing an episode with Tiny Tim and just thinking what the heck is that <laughs> um, and then then a few years after that in my, my sort of late teens I developed a real interest in sort of American counterculture of the the late 60s summer of love and all that kind of thing and so I, I was reading a lot of books and magazines about that period and Tiny Tim would have occasionally come up and you know obviously he was adopted by the uh, the counterculture in a way so those things came together and it sort of started making some kind of sense do you remember what you felt was it was he only funny or did you what did you see i don't know it, it... He kind of was, he was funny, but he wasn't funny. He just seemed to be a man out of time almost, or maybe not even out of time, a man kind of almost from a different planet or something. A very strange, unique, but interesting individual, I guess. I think if Tiny had ever gone out on stage and faked it, he wouldn't have been able to pull any of it off. Everybody would have just said it was just all bullshit. But because he was so earnest and sincere, and it was undeniably in his face and in all of it, that he was out there sincerely doing what he wanted to do. It it wasn't a shtick. It wasn't something just to get the middle-class conservatives all flipped out with his hair and his falsetto. I think he went out there to give 110% of who he wanted to honestly be. Yeah. And it didn't matter if there was one person in the in the crowd or thousand. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, he was doing it 10, 15, 20 years before he even got discovered or, you know, picked up on, wasn't he? So it was, I think it genuinely was him. That's the thing that your film really gets across. He loved to be in the limelight and he felt he was always going to succeed no matter what. But it wasn't a commercial decision. It was just he wanted to be able to Mm. perform music and one thing i really really loved about your film this seems to be a common thing that they have in a lot of documentaries but you use it to really great effect was the animated sequences early on in the film where you show the impression that he's he's sitting there we get the black and white real world which is not so pretty for him but then you go to color while he's imagining all the beautiful people in the 1930s dancing and listening to the songs of bing crosby all those great tin pan alley tunes i'm comparing it to the feeling that the Mia Farrow character gets in the Purple Rose of Cairo, watching (laughs) all those beautiful people. She lives in that imaginary world, and so does Tiny Tim, but that was the world that he fell into. It was the only beautiful world that he could find, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. I was just thinking about time periods. Between now and 30 years ago from now, I mean, 30 years in the past, that would have been like the grunge era. When Tiny 
the period that he was playing his music, he was only really playing music that was like 30 years behind. A lot of the people, they looked at the songs and his mannerisms and all of that as something that was like from another planet. But actually, like I said, it was only about 30 years back. And I find that really interesting. And I think maybe it was because of the hippie era and everybody looking forward that nobody wanted to look back. You know, know, it's like it might as well have been a thousand years behind him. It didn't matter. I mean, that's what I got out of it. You mean that he didn't that he didn't succeed to continue his uh, career that well in the 70s. Yeah, and also just because of the fact that the music that he was playing, people thought it was just so archaic and ancient, when in fact it was only really about 30 years prior. Yeah, And I just think that's so amazing. They're saying, oh, look at this dinosaur. And he's like, no, he wasn't really a dinosaur. He would have been considered classic hits today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the debut album, there were maybe half of it was new written pop songs from Richard Perry, the producer. He ordered from cool writers back then in 68. So it was a mixture of the old Tin Pan Alley and pop songs. I was telling Tim and Bernie before we started recording with you that I wouldn't say I'm not, like, not even a fan, but just I casually knew Tiny Tim from Tiptoe Through the Tulips, but I also remember Eve of Destruction coming out in the 90s, this full-on blown rock record. This whole darn world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading, you're old enough to kill, but not for folding, you don't believe in war, but, but what's the gun you're toting, and even the Jordan River had bodies falling, but you tell me, over and over again, my friend, you don't believe, we're on the eve of destruction. So in preparation for our conversation tonight, I went back to listen to that debut album, God Bless Tiny Tim. And I wasn't sure what to expect. Was it just going to be him and a ukulele for 30 minutes or what it was going to be? And exactly what you're saying there, Johan, is that the songs are contemporary or they're the old style Tim Panelli songs done in a really refreshing way that absolutely fitted in in 1968 and I was wanting to know did you find out anywhere in your research whether he had any connection or any working relationship with Harry Nilsson because God Bless Tiny Tim to me sounds like a late 1960s Harry Nilsson album almost okay yeah interesting I don't think there is any collaborations but can I understand what you say I can hear it too but uh, I can say that Richard Perry the producer who that was one of his earliest albums that he made and when I met him he was really nostalgic and really proud of the first two Tiny Team albums it was on his top 10 albums that he made he thought he was uh, he really loved it How did you start putting the film together? Because, I mean, I know like with any documentary, there's going to be the requisite amount of interviews with admirers and talking heads. And one thing I really loved about your film was the people who you spoke to were just people who had involvement in his life. You didn't get Bono or some <laughs> or Elvis Costello or someone like that. Oh, man, Tiny Tim was my jam or 
something like yeah. that. How easy or otherwise was it to get people to come on board like Wavy Gravy or Miss Sue? When I started eight years ago, when I saw those first clips, then I found Justin Martell on the internet. I understood that he was some kind of an expert. So I contacted him and he was in the midst of writing Tiny's biography then. He, it, really, it was released like four years ago, maybe. It's a great book. So we have been cooperating since. I was working for our TV channel and sometimes going to the United States for other jobs. And then I, me and Justin, okay, I'm going to Los Angeles. Who can we find there for me to interview? So I was doing this like on my spare time in the evenings, making interviews with people, Richard Perry. And the very first interview was with Mr. Pennebaker in New York. Wow. Yeah, so it was for like four years, it was an underground <laughs> private work. And then I got my company interested and I got a production money from other places so I could do some other interviews. Justin Martel put you in contact with a lot of those people. Yes, yeah, mm. yeah. We should mention that the name of his book is Eternal Troubadour. Yeah, it's fantastic. And Justin often was there when we did interviews and we were referring it to like the Bible, <laughs> the Tiny Tim Bible. Yeah. Johan, was there anybody that you uh, really wanted to speak to that you were unable, they couldn't get in touch with them or they just flat out refused or were people pretty forthcoming about Tim? There are some that we didn't succeed, but the one that I'm most proud of that we in a way got an answer was Bob Dylan. <laughs> he oh, said, wow. Wow. <laughs> just to get a no from him felt like a success. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And we also got to film his private films that he shot from Old Tiny 66. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's the circus footage? Yeah, we, we could yeah. use them at first for free until we got the financing. And so that was really nice. You had a little bit of footage of Tiny talking about him being with the great Mr. Dillon and the photos of them together at Woodstock. Speaking with the world's greatest entertainer today, Mr. Dillon and his wanting me for a movie, Lord willing. Thank you for the wonderful talent he sees in me. To be a close friend of him, to stay and sleep in his house, well, this was too much. And to top it all, he is paying me for it. Thanks, as I also sang for his beautiful wife and kids. Looking at how Bob looked at that point, it looked like it was circa 68, like back when he's on Woodstock Post motorbike accident. Yeah, it's it's a post-motorbike, yeah. Yeah. That's something that I find really interesting. So you're watching Tiny Tim on shows like Laugh-In and Dick Martin either sincerely or maybe just for show is looking around like, this guy's a weirdo, this guy's a freak. And yet with Bob Dylan, Dylan always has been a walking catalogue of the history of Americana and knows thousands of songs. And did anyone sort of like talk to you and say like, that Dylan had seen Tiny Tim as a kindred spirit because he was a walking jukebox as well? Yeah, I mean, I asked uh, Mr. Pennebaker about that. What did Mr. Dylan see in Tiny? He saw a performer. That's what he said. There are those two kind of audiences he had in the 60s in the Greenwich Village Wavy Gravy, Jonas Mikas, Bob Dylan, they saw a unique performer. Maybe they saw that he was kind of crazy, but they saw that his heart and soul on stage. And then after 68, he became more like someone laughing stock. But you have these double images of him. I don't remember what the song was. You showed the footage where Johnny Carson is obviously 
obviously super impressed with a song that Tiny's gone and done on The Tonight Show. And Johnny says to him, we didn't expect that. Almost like this new level of respect for him. But then you also show that footage, I think, like after he's gone and separated from his first wife, from Miss Vicky. And I think he's rolling around on the floor. And Yeah. Do you think I'm sexy? He thinks. gently Don't you just know exactly what they're if you want my body and you think I'm sexy, come on, baby, let me know. Carson does not look impressed. It's almost as if, as if he said, oh, my gosh, I took you on as like my personal protege, my personal project. And what are you doing? It, it, just the, the look on his face. I got that impression. Yeah, but Carson did say late in his life that Tiny Tim was his favorite guest of all times. Wow. wow. I learned a lot from this film because I didn't really know that much about his history. but. That just completely blew my mind that apart from the moon landing, I'd always heard that the Beatles appearance on the Ed Sullivan show had the most number of people watching on television. But according to this, it seems like Tiny Tim getting married had more people. Who are the Beatles? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this great Beatles bootleg, which had all the official Christmas club records that they put out every year. They'd say thank you to their fans and put out like one of those little plastic records. And they got more and more weird as they went. Went on, and in the 1968 yeah. record, you have Tiny talking with George Harrison, and yes. and he sings "Nowhere Man" with the ukulele. We have a special guest here this evening, Mr. Tiny Tim. I'd like to ask him to say a few words. Oh, hello to you, nice Beatles. Uh, it's so wonderful, and what a thrill it is talking here. Here's a I'd heard that years ago and I wasn't even actually sure if it was really Tiny Tim or someone who was mocking him <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, it was him. <laughs> One aspect of Tiny's career that wasn't a part of your film, but I thought was interesting, was when he did Blood Harvest, the one horror movie that he did. Marvelous Mervo at your service. Do you know, was he happy after doing that, or was it just something like, I need the work? What kind of a situation was that? Do you know anything about that? <laughs> I don't know much about it. I know Justin knows. <laughs> okay. Because he knows the guy who made it. But we decided not to bring that, to interview him, the director of that one uh, and since he didn't do any more acting I'm not sure if he was very happy about it I don't okay. really know but Richard Perry also talked about that Tiny could have been big in the movie business, in the horror business, horror movie. Oh, yeah. That seems to be the thing about Tiny is that he just wanted the love, he wanted the attention, and he didn't mind if he was going to be playing the clown, playing the fool in a cheap horror film, or he was going to be rolling around on stage doing Do You Think I'm Sexy? Is pretty much, if I'm entertaining you, that's mission yeah. accomplished. I think it's interesting that, and, you know, obviously you touch on this, uh, in the film but he seemed to have had a fairly dysfunctional relationship with his parents yeah it, it seems to me that he spent the rest of his life trying to gain acceptance and love from wherever he could by performing yeah, right. basically it, it and, does feel it, that way yeah. and it's doubly interesting as well that when he did get a measure of fame and acceptance that he would bring his parents uh, out of the audience and they're on the cover of his second LP he must have had a, a sort of complex strange relationship with his 
parents. But then I, yeah, I guess we all do, don't we? His mother didn't seem to be a very nice lady. No, she was no, she, not she good didn't to him. at all. The amazing thing about the film and the book is that Justin, just like four or five years ago, found the tiniest diaries, his journals. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, uh, without them, it would have been a completely different film. So that was just luck. But it was the son of one of Tiny's mob managers who, who called Justin and said, I have a bag full of Tiny's diaries. Do you want to buy them? That's a, a, another turn as well, which is, you know, truth is stranger than, than fiction, that he would actually yes. wind up being managed by the mob effectively. Yeah. That was just, <laughs> I didn't know that. That was crazy. You associate that with the rat pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with the big boys now. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to get his widow's permission to use the diaries in the film? Yeah. She was completely okay with it? We could use them. What was your relationship like with Miss Sue? Was she saying, look, ask me anything you want, go anywhere you want? Were there any things that she felt uncomfortable with? No, she really was open with everything. When she saw the film, there was a few pictures that she said, oh, he doesn't look pretty on that. Can't we take another? Another picture where he looks more sexy. So that was the only thing that she was concerned about. (laughs) If you want my body and you think I'm sexy, come on, sure, let me know. If you really need me, just reach out and touch me. Come on, tell me so, baby. She said that she still gets young girls and women contacting her saying, oh, they fell in love with Tiny and wanted to know things about him. So he, wow. he, still, he still keeps uh, <laughs> attracted, girls attracted to him. Still a ladies' man, even though he's yeah. been around for 20 years. How, how did you go about getting Weird Al involved? Because I, I thought like his voice was really great for the narration. Yeah, I love it. He was from an American co producer who knew that uh, he, they had performed together and that loved Tiny. He immediately said yes and we recorded it in Los Angeles and I said from the beginning that I wanted to be very somber, very serious and don't act anything. Mm-hmm. Be right. believe like you're reading in your head and he was did it very good. It was very easy. At this moment, I am the hottest talent in the whole country. I am the toast of the city from Hollywood to New York. I am praised by everyone. And yet, with all the shouting and sinning, my soul is in hell. And I cry out for help, oh Jesus. He did a terrific job because the moments that you selected from the diaries to read were all about those moments where Tiny was saying, I'm the biggest star in the world and yet I'm in the torments of hell. Weird Al's delivery, this man who we always associate as a funny man, just got to the heart of how... He imagined Tiny must have been feeling, yeah, how vulnerable he was. Yeah, I like it very much. I think there's a real theme of duality in your film with the life of Tiny because it, it almost seems like he wants to go forward, but then he also wants a simpler way. And it just seems like there's feelings he has. One, I'm not going to give out any spoilers, but there's feelings he might have where it just seems like he was always conflicted. Like Morris was saying, he didn't care how people saw him as long as they saw him. Yeah. But at the same time, he would go forward looking for love whereas it was just in the face of ridicule I just felt like there was a real duality to his life yeah I think he was really was a tormented soul in that way he had a religion very very strong belief yeah. in Jesus and he had his love for women all women and when you read the diaries it's this fight on every page and every 
single day almost. We were talking about it. Someone should publish the diaries. They are such a read. It's uh, unbelievable. He's very intelligent and smart. And sometimes you just think, who is this guy? He's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Johnny Pineapple, a friend of his for the, the last few years of his life, says that he's the most intelligent man he ever met, that he knew so much. He read a lot. He, he knew really everything. But still, he, he was <laughs> totally out there. I think what you say there is pretty much like the calling card for the film in the opening two minutes. So we get this what the hell who is this guy with mm. him doing both voices for I've Got You Babe that performance that opens <laughs> up the film they say I love rent before it's earned our money's always spent well I don't know we ain't got no plot still I'm sure of all the love we got babe I got you babe and then we see him on the set of Beat Club, the German program, German music program. He's speaking with such candor, such openness, such honesty. It's not the character of Tiny Tim blowing kisses to the audience and saying, oh, thank you very much. Thank you. He's saying, going through the city for almost 10 years, 13 years at least, uh, being as a freak, it was really the challenge that I tried to overcome. Because in all fairness, by 1962... Every friend of mine and every relative had given up on me. They, they would come into my mother's house and just shake their heads when they saw me and walk the other way. It's almost like he dropped the facade, if that was a facade. Uh, yeah. And he's speaking with such honesty. And that two minutes just, I think, summarizes everything that you're going to see from that point on. Do you think that despite the fact that he, what, he was prepared to do anything to have attention paid to him, that... It some way being looked at that way did hurt him and that was where his torment came from doing the freak show flea circus doing the circus later on in life when his star had fallen is there anything that you knew of that was in the diaries that said that well I'll do whatever but it really does hurt yes you can see that sometimes but not very much but you can see that he wants another life but he doesn't let it show very much but you can understand that and also in the the beginning of the film it's almost like he's been in therapy for years and he talks very like intelligence that i was a freak but now i'm here it looks like now i'm well but <laughs> he keeps on being a freak going back to what i mentioned earlier his relationship with his parents your kind of thoughts and feelings and self-image are all kind of shaped in the first sort of i think sort of seven to ten years of your life as you're growing up you're continually told that you're a freak or you're wrong or you're strange as you get older it's difficult to shake that and I, I kind of get the feeling with Tiny Tim that he was hoping that he would get some salvation almost through entertaining by being recognised as an entertainer. By the audience. Bring, exactly, yeah. yes. And I think when he actually got there and he got that, it didn't make any difference. I think he still felt like a freak. He was still unhappy. And I, I think that probably added a lot to his torment over the years. Look ugly when you're alone. 
made fifty thousand dollars in Las Vegas, but he wasn't happy <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's difficult. You are who you are in your head, aren't you? And even if someone's suddenly paying you loads of money and telling you you're amazing, you've still yeah. spent the last thirty years thinking there's something wrong with you. It's and it's difficult to get out of that mindset. So I kind of get the impression that there, there was a big element of that with Tiny Tim. Yes. I just wonder whether he would have actually maybe had a happier life if he'd stayed in Greenwich Village and just performed in the folk clubs for a few years for as long as they were a thing. Yeah, having an alternative culture career on the low scale, yeah. As we said at the start of this, because 2020, it's probably been difficult to get the film out and seen. You had this showing on the Fantasia Film Festival. Has it been shown in any other? Yes, there was a festival in Paris as well, a small festival two weeks ago, mm-hmm. whether it was showed. I mean, the Fantasia was only digital, but this was in theaters in Paris. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. And now it's scheduled for theater release in the U.S. and in Sweden and Canada, I think. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. November. Have you had any feedback yet from how both the casually interested film goer has received it and also how the Tiny Tim's fan base has received it? There was a lot of writings on like different websites and magazines, uh, both in France and in the, after the Montreal showings, and it, it was really positive extremely positive that people seem to love it we knew Tiny Tim but we knew nothing about his life so this was so enlightening and uh, Weird Al Jankovic gets a lot of praise as well this has been amazing to meet and uh, I hope it will be showing on a lot of theaters today. In the beginning, it's the big cities in the States, but they are planning to make it roll over the country. Corona lets it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Has Justin seen it? What was his take on it? Did he enjoy it? Oh, yes. Yeah, good. He was involved a lot. And uh, yeah. we, have been fight- we have been fighting a lot, but now, <laughs> he- now he's happy. <laughs> your film. You-, you get the final say, Johan, because it's your film. <laughs> I haven't actually read Eternal Troubadour, but I'm aware that it's a really comprehensive book. And so there must have been a whole lot of detail that you couldn't touch on in a really, it's like a 75 minute film. Was there anything that you were thinking I'd like to put in there, but it interrupts the flow of the story I'm trying to tell? Oh, there's a million things that I would love to have. It has really been a a tough ride choosing and for a while it was much longer but then we felt that uh, it's better it, it's easier it's it's better to have a short film and you want to have more than to have the feeling that it's too long so we right. decided to make it a short documentary shorter documentary and people can find out <laughs> more about him in a way that's kind of good i think because then there's a lot of gems that you might end have tapped into for the film and now like once you pick people's interest and yeah. people are going to go forward now and dig into the vaults and go oh wow Wow, like that's that's awesome. I hope so. <laughs> As I approach the prime of my life, I find I have the time of my life, learning to enjoy at my leisure all the simple pleasures. And so I happily conceive. Was there anything that you discovered through your research and through the making of this film? Because I mean, you said that when you first heard about Tiny Tim nine years ago or something, yeah. and your first reaction, which was pretty much what a lot of people's first reaction would have been if they hadn't known anything else about him, which was to laugh and think, who is this strange guy? But 
as you went on, was there something that came to you that was a complete surprise, something that you didn't expect or as a result of having done the research with Justin? I love, <laughs> I, I still laugh when I think about how I understood his political views. And when I have told people that I interviewed and asked him, what did you know about his political views back then in 68, 69? And everybody thought that he was like a flower power, hippie guy. No, he was a right-wing hawk. What? <laughs> Way with greatest reaction. Why? He just falls to the floor. What? <laughs> Why? He was, he was pro the Vietnam War all the, all the way. And <laughs> he was very wow. much African. And he would have been Trump supporter 100%. Oh, man. That's oh. Oh no. He'd feel dual divisions there because at one point he says how his second wife, or soon to be ex second wife, had been hit upon by Donald Trump. So that was a funny. Mr. de Blasio, who was his manager in 68, 69, he said he explained how they had to hide anything political when they were doing uh, interviews. Don't talk about that. Talk about how much you love your mother's apple cake. <laughs> Don't talk about the war. Don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. At one point you talk in the film about the trip that he made to Sydney in the 1980s, I think, about how he performed, was it 140 songs trying to get into the Guinness Book of World Records for doing the most number of songs in one go. And I don't think that the film actually explains but you, you say that it didn't get into the Guinness Book of World Records but did anyone actually say why was it disqualified? I knew it a year ago but now I've forgotten why there was, <laughs> there was some like bureaucracy in the Guinness hierarchy I'm not sure but ah, there was, there was, wow. we were very disappointed Has anyone broken that record since? Uh, I don't know If no one's done that since then I think you know we ought to start up a petition Yeah absolutely <laughs> They should have realised you know the Guinness Book of World Records is great, but how could they make it better? By having Tiny Tim in the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure, obviously, you would have watched it, Johan, but Tim, Bernie, did you watch, it's on YouTube, the entire TV special he recorded while he was in Australia. He'd come to Australia years before that Guinness Book of World Records attempt, yeah. I think 1970, and yes. he did something on the Channel 7 network here. That was odd, a strange thing. And yet, in some ways, I think it holds its own given that like whenever you get a performer who does a one-off special they always try to get other actors to do sketches with them and pretty much the focus for the whole show was tiny there were no comedy sketches like a, a famous australian actor saying hey tiny how are you enjoying your time down under which cultural cringe we do that a lot here unfortunately <laughs> the first part of the show has him just doing like a whole bunch of songs just him and the ukulele then there's one with the backdrop of him doing a few australian songs and even did like the australian national anthem Thank you. Then he does 
like a rock and roll medley, but the strangest thing of all in that show, for about 30 minutes, he's singing songs to a group of young children, which would never hold in the 21st century. But even for then, it looks really, really odd. So what were your thoughts? You would have seen that, Johan, because I mean, I think you actually have like a few seconds of footage from that. Yes, we do. I, I mean, it's really strange and funny. And he, he sings for these children and he was very uncomfortable when he was with children. He couldn't relate to children at all, he says. So that was one of the things that his manager left him in like 69 because they had a big deal for him to be a host for a children's show they wanted to do that and he just said no I can't be near children I don't I don't understand them <laughs> wow yeah wasn't his third LP sort of uh, aimed at children was it children's songs yeah. and people say also that there were several things like around 1970 that destroyed ruined his career and there was also uh, an album that was really Release that was illegal that someone re- released with songs recorded back in 1964 maybe like a bootleg LP and yeah, but it was yeah. released in really big numbers and people bought it and, and thought wow Tiny Tim never again so <laughs> that was one of the things that ruined his career and then the mafia it's like the whole Tiny Tim story it's like a, a perfect confluence of everything coming together in the right place at the right time it's just exactly. it, it could have only happened at that point in history yeah. with him doing what he was doing then and the, you know the, the correct people seeing him and it all just coming together it's a perfect it's storm yeah exactly Tiny wasn't a real person like his whole life story would be like a coen brothers movie (laughs) it just seems like you know the rise the fall and he still goes on and yeah but there was this other australian film that the artist martin made in uh, he was filming it for like at least 10 years maybe more and it was released sometime in the 80s and it's uh, really poetic pieces of that film are fantastic uh, he really loved tiny and thought that he was one of the big entertainers in the world what was that about what was that film the setting was that there was a big fire in sydney at the amusement park in sydney yes luna park yep luna park in the 80s so they had filmed tiny a lot and then that fire occurred and then mr martin made that the main story and tiny was at luna park and he was doing a lot of things and he was in new york also so he films tiny with his mother in the 80s yeah that's a really sometimes very poetic and sometimes just strange film i want to come back to the concept of the animation that we spoke a little bit about before who actually did that and did you have your own ideas about how you wanted it to look did your collaborator come up with it what's what's the story behind that we were looking for an artist who could make animations with an personal we just wanted something personal we we hadn't uh, a clear image what we wanted but we wanted someone who fell for the story and wanted to make something out of their own head and then we find this marco mastrovic in croatia who is easier an artist and he did some animations and so it was mainly him him and his wife doing it and I just loved it. It was it's so simple and and yet it tells a lot about the atmosphere. So how much information did you provide them and was it their creativity or did you come up with exactly what you wanted? Yeah, we said that now it's 30 seconds in his home and this is the information that we are given. This is what people say. His parents are in the bedroom. So it was we were quite <laughs> quite precise that gave me a big laugh i gotta confess there's no closed doors in this apartment and oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, Yikes. we were there. We were there knocking at the apartment to try to film in, but nobody opened the door. We received more mail about you than almost anyone else we've ever had on the show. Oh, thank you out there in television land. Tiny's been gone. There's no surprises here. So the film ends just shortly following his death. But how did you feel about including the footage where we see him collapse? Like not actually where he dies, but like two months before. Yeah. He goes on stage. He's not been feeling well and he just falls forward. Because like as a spectator, I I found that absolutely, it made me jump out of my seat. Yeah, 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 me too. Yeah. Would you rather not have it or as a viewer I'm glad it's there I didn't feel like I was watching something that wasn't meant to be seen but I did find it really shocking and in in a way it brought home the final tragedy of the end of his life all the more so he'd been living in poverty and he'd not been taken seriously no matter how much he'd tried to do and that was just sort of like the the final straw but I was just wondering whether that was something for you whether you were toying with should I include this should I not include this We thought about it, but if he had died there, then it would have been different. But now, I mean, he recovered, he did perform again. I wanted very much to be in the film. There's a real emotional investment, I think, that you get from that, because it's almost like from the beginning of the film, Tiny's almost like this baby bird that you find, and you're trying to nurture it and watch it go along on its journey (laughs) and get its wings and fly, and then it flies, and then it comes down again, and then at the end when you see it kind of fall over, you're like, oh! You know, and it just, if you're really into Tiny and you see that, it's like watching your kid kind of trip off of a stage, you know, and you just want to rush to them (laughs) yes yeah i think it's strong and i'm maybe one thing that i regret that we that's not in the film are his friends from the last few years called the the tiny heads they were like his fans and then they became his friends all over the states i mean he was doing such small shows that his manager called his the tiny heads and said no tiny is coming to boston and then they got picked him up at the airport and drove him to the gigs and stuff like that they were really good friends so we met a few of them and they were talking memories and a few of them were there when he got that heart attack and and then we rushed to him and we, I ran out and got them, people to call an ambulance. That's dramatic. Yeah, that was amazing. He really had friends that loved him so very much. And they all said that he was a good friend. He wasn't just a, like a star. He, he was with us all the time when we wanted to. At the end of it, what comes through was that he was not this one-dimensional character. If you'd only seen that little bit of footage on laughing or you'd caught some other performance of him saying oh miss vicky oh miss sue you really do tell a story about a human being with dark feelings as a lot of us do a man with fierce intelligence and really what comes down to it whilst his singing voice may not have been your thing but it's obvious that he had a great singing voice. I mean, the, the very beginning of the film, coming back to I Got You, Babe, and he has not just this falsetto soprano, but he has this vibrato, which is really, really hard to pull off. And that was just part of what he did. He was a talented human being. He was a person who cared about other people. I, mean, I get all this impression 
out of your film, and I think I can speak on behalf of all of us, that your film was a great success in that you conveyed this story and the character of the man that people who might not know anything about him apart from the one song would never have guessed. More power to you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really come to like him a lot. I'm not sure that I would love to work with him or be with him for a long time, but (laughs) he's really a lovable figure and character, and he really made a life that no one would have expected in the 40s or 50s. Well, I think you say at the start of the film, or or somebody mentions, but um, he basically had to invent himself and invent his own reality almost, despite the ups and downs. He kind of succeeded in doing that, didn't he? He started the diary, the journals start from 1952, when he's 20 years old. The first year, he writes, one day I will be a star. He was so into that from early age. And then he writes about how everybody's disbelief in him and how his parents wants him into the mental hospital, Mm -hmm. how people kick him on the street. Even like in 1964, he says, one day I will be the biggest star. And his father says, cut your hair and get a job for Christ's sake. (laughs) He was like 35 years old then. He wasn't a kid anymore. No. I know that with every mania that's related to showbiz, there's always paraphernalia that's sold. So, you know, there were Beatle wigs and Welcome Back Cotter board games and the like. Did you find that anything where there was a rush on Tiny Tim wigs or plastic ukuleles? <laughs> I think there were quite a few things that they wanted to, to to sell, but I think they all got too late. He was already beginning to fade away when they had it out on the market. So I don't think they made any big money on anything. He did write a book, a small book with with like phrases. I remember one phrase, one phrase on each uh, page, and it said, "Don't discourage." Tiny Tim made it. Things like that. Yeah, I think that one maybe sold because. That was still in 69, but cardboard game and that never sold much, I think. I know there were dolls. There were actual dolls with the yeah. string you could pull on the back and then he would have like phrases and things. Yeah. <laughs> going down all the time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. Yeah. I'm on the highway to hell. I'm on the highway What's next for you, Johan? I've been... In the same time as I parallel, I've been doing a a film about a Swedish artist also for six or seven years, and it also was premiered this month. So I'm kind of empty now, and it feels like a. (laughs) (laughs) So now I'm waiting for something to fill me up. How was your headspace having to concentrate on two films at once? I mean, were you waiting for financing for one or waiting for information to come from the other? How difficult was it to do that? I decided to give it a go. And, and I've been doing other things for my station. I mean, I'm even working full-time with other things and doing this on my spare time. So I've, I thought, I keep on going and see what happened. And I've given up a few times. And then Justin calls and says, I found the, the diaries or something like that. So and then, wow. let's go, let's go. So it's been, it's been a ride. But now I'm, of course, really happy that we made it all the way. I don't know. I'm not sure if I will do another eight year with the next film. That's uh... <laughs> For the film's release, I mean, I know you're saying that you're going to be getting some cinematic release in the US. And is there any talk of it getting like a, a DVD release or a streaming release in the next few months? I'm not sure when, but we they are discussing that. So hope, hopefully it will be the winter. 
all we can say to our listeners is please keep an eye out for Tiny Tim King for a Day at a cinema near you or for in a few months time on a streaming service that you subscribe to we just love this film it's 75 minutes but it's so packed with a lot of information we all learned something out of it i know i certainly gained a new appreciation for tiny tim and his work and that first album which i went and listened to for the first time in preparation for this god bless tiny tim was amazing it was really not what i was expecting i was thinking i'm going to turn this off after two or three songs as i said earlier it sounds like a a late 60s nelson era album and it's, it's just like one of these undiscovered gems or forgotten gems thank you for putting this film out oh yeah thank absolutely you. thank you for giving us your time today thank you very really... much it was my pleasure it was fun yeah like this was great we come now to the end of episode 77 of see here podcast we have a couple of irons in the fire for what's going to happen for episode 78 but we'll be posting that in the facebook group so just keep an eye out for that johan is there any way how people can keep up with what you're up to and how they can easily find out where the film will get screenings. The easiest way is there is a Facebook page for Tiny Tim King for a Day, so that's the easiest way. There, there will be information on that page on Facebook. We'll put a link in the show notes. Once again, huge thanks to you, Johan, for uh, being on C here. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.